We are in 1 Chronicles 29, the first 17 verses. Hear then the word of God. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, he's young and inexperienced, and the work is great. And the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. And so I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold uh, for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, uh, and the iron for the things of iron, the wood for the things of wood, and besides great quantities of onyx stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones, and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the, uh, the holy house, uh, I have a treasure out of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of God, 3,000 talents of gold, uh, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the house, and for all the work that is to be done by the craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for the things of silver, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord, to Yahweh, that is his covenant name. And then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did the leaders of the tribes and the commanders of thousands and of hundreds and the officers of the king's, of the king's work. And they gave for the service of the house of God another 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold and 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel, the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced greatly. And therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yes, O Lord. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are to be exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you our God, and we praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is this people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all the things come from you, and of your own have you given them to us. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there's no abiding. O Yahweh, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for the building of a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. And in the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we 
Thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for what you are doing in the life of the church. And even now as we simply sit and contemplate what you have done in the past and how you have done it and the ways in which you work in the hearts and the minds of your people, the way you accomplish your sovereign and good things among us by working in us and through us, by working and pouring out your spirit and accomplishing all of your sovereign good purposes in the life of your church and in this world, in our lives, in our families, in our homes. We bow before you and we acknowledge you are the giver of every good gift and ask that you might stir our hearts this morning for we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to this text again, <clears throat> the last time, it's very similar to where we were two weeks ago before the Global Outreach Conference. We, uh, we talked about the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness and how God gave Israel a vision both for the tabernacle and then he gave provision, how he provided for the, uh, the building of it. He had given resources in advance. He had given the plunder from all of Egypt into the pockets or into uh, the lives of his people. So when it came time for this project, they had more than enough. There was such a flow, there was such an abundance that they had to say, okay, we've got what we need. Today we're jumping ahead four or five hundred years in the story. Uh, there are many similarities in reading the lists of what was given. It's a similar project. This one is going to have more permanence than the, than the tabernacle and the temple, but it's a similar project, and there are similar things going on. We see that the, the tabernacle had served the people for uh, centuries. Right? They've had this tabernacle since, you know, from the time of Moses, then through the time of Joshua and the conquest and into the judges in that period of time, through their wanderings and their conquest and their settlement into the promised land. And they've even used it through the first couple of kings. It's in the life of David after Saul and David that they're contemplating building something more permanent. God had placed a vision into David's heart. It's time. It's time to replace the tabernacle. Right? It's time to press on into what is next. Right? It's time to put down something firm and lasting. Israel had become a settled nation in the land of promise. Their population had grown and their needs had changed. And God said it's time. It's similar to how many of us feel. We've moved over here and settled on the land and we've been here for a period of time. We feel truly blessed in what God has given us. But the circumstances and our needs have changed. And now it's time for God's people to press forward, to build for the future, to invest in what's next and what God is doing. And while God gave David vision for the temple, he also told him that it would be Solomon who would be building the temple and not David. But David had a heart for it. David, David wanted to be a part of it. David wanted to have a, a hand in it. It was, it was a monumental thing that God was doing. And he could see the finished product, so to speak, and he knew his son would do it. But he wanted to be involved. 
And so he dedicated himself to this great work, and he decided that since he can't build the temple, what he's going to do is raise the funds and the materials and the resources necessary, and so to leave them to his son for the great work that God was calling them to. And so it was really the last thing that David did before he died, was to fund the new temple. Chapter 29 that we just read about half of, right, it tells the story of how David did this, in the life of Israel, and then the chapter, the same chapter 29, ends with his death. It was sort of his, his legacy. It was the last thing that he could have his hand in. And what I want us to notice today is what God did in the hearts of the people. We talked about a lot of other aspects of it the last time. So I just want to focus on, as I read this text again, and I'm thinking about, you know, the same project, what really stands out in the midst of this is not how much. They do have a lot of lists. You kind of read through them and your eyes glaze over. Lists of how much and whatnot. But around all of that, as God relates the story to us, he talks about what's going on in the hearts of his people. What's in David's heart and what's in the leaders of the community's hearts and, and in the people and how it affected them as a community as they participated and celebrated what God was doing. And we see it starting in verse 1, and we're going to see if you saw my outline, some of you are terrified at this moment because there were six points. Right? Robert never has more than three, sometimes four, but six. But there it is, you know, we're just walking through. I'm gonna, I'm, hopefully we'll do them in good order in time. Uh, but, but just picking and noticing what God is doing. There's a heart for the next generation, a heart for the Lord God, a, a, a heart that is willing uh, and consecrated, a joyful and whole heart, a heart for the glory of God, a generous and grateful heart. Right? We see so much that God is doing in this text. And it starts in verse 1. As David says, it says that David the king, uh, he says to the whole assembly, Solomon, my son, uh, whom alone God has chosen, he's the one who's going to build it. He's young and inexperienced, though. So this work is great. It's huge. And the palace, this temple that we're about to build, will not be for man, but it will be for God. Right? We're doing this building project. Right? We're doing a capital campaign, and we're doing a building project. But he says... It's not about us. It's not for us. It's not for David. He says, it's not for me, and it's not even for Israel. Right? It's not even, it. he says this, we do this for, he says, the Lord. All right, David wants to have a part in what God is doing. And so he says it here to the whole assembly. I'll just do a little aside because I... I do think it's important, and it's an aside. But he speaks to the whole assembly, and the word right there for assembly, do you know the apostles, Jesus and the apostles did not have a Hebrew Bible. They, they read and used the Bible in Greek. They had the, the Greek Septuagint. About 200 years before Jesus, the Jewish scholars had translated the Old Testament into Greek. And we know that it was what they used because when they quote it in the New Testament, it's translations, it's quotes from the Septuagint. They're using the Greek translation. And so they, they, that's the, the, the context for how they say and do things. And so in the, in the Septuagint right here where the word is, he, the king said to all the assembly, the word there is ecclesia, which is the word translated throughout the New Testament as church. But we see here that when, when, when the apostles and when Jesus deliberately use that word, the word ecclesia, 
to describe, it describes the gathering of Israel, and they deliberately use it to describe the gathering of God's New Testament people. Here is the ecclesia, the church, the gathered people in the Old Testament, and here is the ecclesia, the church, the gathered people in the New Testament. And so the church, by definition, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, is God's chosen people gathered. And so the word is used throughout the Septuagint to describe Israel, Ecclesia. New Testament, they didn't make it up a word church for something new. The word had been used throughout the Old Testament. It was a word that they knew for the gathering of God's chosen people. He spoke to the Ecclesia, the church, the assembled people of God, the chosen people of God. And the same thing is happening today as I speak to you, the chosen gathered people of God. And so Israel is a church in the Old Testament, the Ecclesia. And the church is Israel in the New Testament, the gathered people of God. Anyway, he gathers the church for this work as they're gathered together. He says, it's not for man, but it is for the Lord. It's important because I think it's the key to everything that unfolds in the rest of this chapter. What happens? What happens in the life of God's people, in the life of the church, of the the assembled people of God? What happens here? is governed by this idea, this fact, this notion, this posture that it is not about us. This isn't for us. We're not gathering to do something for us. We're doing something that is, he says, for Yahweh, God. This is what motivates God's people. It's the heart of what they are doing. And it's the heart of what we are doing. We would say the same thing. This isn't about us. It's not about me. It's not about us. I'm not going to be here. You know, Lord only knows that much longer. You know, we all have that find out. It's not. This is for the generations. This is for something that, that God is doing for, hopefully, for generations to come. It's not our work, right? It's out of a heart for the Lord, to serve His purposes, to serve His kingdom, to be a part of what He is doing. That we participate, as David sees it, as a great privilege. The temple was God's idea. It was inspired and, and given to David. In other words, it was God's will. Which is the only reason that Hicks and Prez is moving ahead with this project now. And we've weighed it and these economic times and all that's going on. And we say, can we do this thing? And part of us in a human sense is like, well, maybe it's not the best time. But, but then again, it just seems in everything that we have said and done, that it is. It is the right time. There's a, right, there's a rightness about the timing. There's a, it was affirmed in the leadership. There's in, in the, the session is 100% united, and it's pressing forward as we overwhelmingly affirmed it as a congregation when we talked about it and took a vote. And we believe that God has given us a unity, and he's opened every door. He's been providing every need. The project before us is fairly sizable. The project for Israel was huge. But what pushed David forward, the reason he went ahead with it, what caused him to go all in, even though, you know, he didn't have much time left, and what did he do with the rest of his life? He made sure the temple was provided for and built. Why does David go all in and give, in a sense, the rest of his life to this project, and he believes that God is in it and it's for the Lord, that he's doing something that's much bigger than himself? What, what better thing could he give the remainder of his life to? 
And something like this, it would stand at the center of the worship in the life of Israel. There's conviction that it's not for himself, that he's serving God's kingdom. We see it in verse 3, I just... That language there that describes David's heart. He says, moreover, in addition to all that, I've provided all these things for the holy house. I have a treasure of my, of my own gold and silver when he gets down to his personal contributions. And he says, it's because of my devotion to the house of my God. I give it to the house of my God. We long to do what we do for the glory and for the kingdom of God, out of love for Him, out of a life of worship, to be a part of what God is doing. And so we see He has a heart for the Lord God, as does all of Israel. He governs all of this. He governs as we move into verses 2 to 8. The third point, a heart of willing consecration. Right in verses 2 to 8, we get the, the long list, but we see right in the middle of that list, right? David begins in verse 2, uh, provision out of I, I, what seems to me out of his civil capacity as king because he says I've provided all these things um, and then when he gets down to uh, verses 3 to 5 he says then he gave substantially out of my own gold and out of my own silver out of his own personal wealth he provided as king I can provide all this stuff and you know what I'm digging into my personal retirement and my personal funds and I'm going to give personally into it substantially, because King David was a wealthy man. But I love as he finishes talking about that in verse 5, right? He says, in all of the work of the Lord that will be done, I give all this stuff, gold for this and silver for that. And then he said, he looks up to the congregation, here's, here's what I'm doing. He looks up and he says, who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord God? He puts the question to the people. What's the question to the congregation? Who will offer willingly to Yahweh, consecrating himself to the Lord? It reminds me of Isaiah 6. Who will go for me? And you hear Isaiah respond, Hear my Lord, send me. Right, that's what David is saying in many ways. I'm, I want to be a part of it. Right? Here's God's call. And, and hearts are moved. <laughs> He says, to consecrate ourselves to God's service. Now, I want us to notice when he gives this call to the congregation that the first people to respond are the leaders. Right? And look in verse 6, he says, Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their free will offering, and when the leaders of the fathers' houses did, as did the leaders of then the tribes, and the commanders of the thousands and the hundreds, and the officers of the king's over the king's work, and then basically all the leadership in the various aspects of the community uh, made their offering. Right? They stepped up in first in line to give. And in verses 7 to 8, it's just recording the gifts of the leadership. And you get a similar list of gold, silver, bronze, iron, stones. But what we see in verse 9 then is that David and the congregation are, are thrilled, right? They're encouraged by the response of the leadership. Right? In verse 9, it says, Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. Speaking of the leadership, they saw the leadership's generosity. He said the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. And it may be that they're participating at this point too and are, are, are excited about 
what God has done through all of them, even as a congregation. He says, for with a whole heart they offered freely to the Lord. And it says, David the king also greatly rejoiced. The leaders led in giving. Their leadership, they, they stepped out. And in, in not just in the areas of there, but in the life of the congregation and this work of God, they led in the giving. In a similar way, we were counseled, and maybe because of this text, as we have gotten counsel about how to go through this process and to see it work, we were counseled to have the leadership uh, make their pledges first so that something in this order might have that we can celebrate then and rejoice what God did at that stage of the game before the rest of us have a chance next Sunday to pledge. And so we've done that. We asked them to pledge by the end of the last week. And at the end of the service, we're going to have a video, one, you know, our third installment of a video, and going to announce then what it is, uh, how much we've raised through just the leadership. But the leadership stepped forward first, and they led in giving, and we're going to do that today. And then next Sunday, invite you to join us in this. But in verse 5, we notice that willingness is equated with consecration. Right? It's an interesting sentence in the way that he pulls these together when he asks that question and he puts it to the congregation. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? And how those two things are tied. Who, who will offer willingly, consecrating themselves? Tying these notions. Consecration, that's a word. I like that word. It's a to, to consecrate oneself, I think of it as I often in my own walk with the Lord again and again want to consecrate myself to God because it's a word that it actually it normally is used in the ordination in the Old Testament in particular of priests. So it was the ordination of priests. It was setting aside of man to the service of God. Right? And so that he was consecrated to that work. He was set aside to that work. Right? It's now what he lives for. It's who he is and what he does kind of a thing. The idea of setting apart to the service of God. But here gives, David gives a general call to the whole assembly and to the whole church and says, who will consecrate himself for the Lord's service? Who will, he says, give freely, consecrating yourself to the work of God? He ties consecration of ourselves to the willing offering of material resources to the service of God's kingdom. Martin Selman, one commentator, says this, Here, the lack of distinction between offering oneself or self-offering and the offering of material things, right? the lack of distinction between those two things is very striking. To give the one is to give the other. It's to give them both. Who will consecrate himself to the Lord? Freely offering. Right? Giving oneself to God involves all of who we are and all of what we have. They're, they're all together. To give ourselves to God is to give everything to God. And then, as we just heard a testimony, it's an, a matter of stewardship. What does God want me to do with his time and money and resources? We see a heart for the Lord and a heart of willing consecration. We also see then a joyful and whole heart 
in verse 9. Right? The people rejoiced because they had given willingly with a whole heart as they offered freely, and they rejoiced, and David rejoiced greatly. I love the strong images that, that come through here. There's willing, wholehearted offering to the Lord that brings joy and celebration in the life of the community. They're celebrating the spirit uh, that God has wrought and created among them and what God was doing, just watching it go down, watching it happen. And then celebrating together, and David standing over and celebrating together, the result is joy and celebration. Not at how much, per se, and we notice this in here, they're celebrating what God did in the hearts of the people. Right? They're celebrating, he, said, he says, that we've given willingly and that we have been able to do this. Celebrating the generosity in the hearts of God's people, watching it unfold. As hearts in God's, amongst them were consecrated to God and what he was doing and to his work and to his kingdom. Martin Selman again says it this way, such sacrificial generosity arose from a whole heart because the giving was directed to the Lord and not just to a project. They were not celebrating so much the project or even what came in, but their giving, all of this is directed, as we said from verse 1, for the Lord. And they celebrate what God is doing. to be freely offering to the Lord. Now, let me pause here. I didn't know where to put it in here, but I did want to pause and to say, because even as we go through this, and I know in my own life, I've had various times in my life. Early in ministry, I was a home missionary raising my own money, and we lived below the poverty level, I think. Um, you know, selling things to do things. And, you know, we had, but various times in my life, I've had different capacity. And so we know, have had known along the way at different stages in different ways. We all have different capacity. And so I just wanted to speak a word of freedom to some of you who may even be struggling with what I'm saying because your heart may be all in and you, you see what God is doing and yet you understand your capacity is very limited. And you may not be able to participate the way that you want to. And I guess I wanted to say at this stage that that's okay. Um, and we understand that the leadership certainly understands that. You cannot give what you do not have. Right? But we give, out of, we give out of the abundance of what God has given, and we have to just figure out what that is. So we need to be free. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says this in verse 12. For if the readiness is there, right? he's talking about the heart, right? If the heart is willing, if the, if the readiness is there. He says if the readiness is there, it's acceptable then to give according to what a person has and not according to what a person does not have. Right? So he says, so if the willingness is there, it's not about how much you give at that point. It's about the willingness and the desire. The readiness is there, but we have to give in accordance to, in proportion to what God has provided for us. So anyway, I just want to speak that word of freedom to some of you who may struggle with what you're able to do. Generosity looks different. Jesus praised the widow's might, which was a tiny, tiny fraction of what the Pharisees who came in loudly clanked their money into the... But he praised her giving because it was sacrificial, though it was small. Whatever capacity God has given us individually, God is doing a work among the whole assembly. Right? I don't know who gave what in here and who was, you know, and there may have been very, very small givers or non-givers all the way up to those who got to give in great capacity, but what they saw God do in the course of the whole assembly, the whole assembly rejoiced together in what God did. It's a joyful, 
and whole heart, but there's also a heart for the glory of God. There's some the most beautiful verses in this whole book, in this prayer that David launches into, this worship. He leads the congregation then in worship and prayer in response to what God is doing in their midst. Right? Isn't it beautiful as David stood and he blesses the Lord in the presence of all of the people and of all the assembly, the church. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is greatness and power and glory and victory and majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. You are God. You're the creator and maker of all things, the owner of all things. Every breath we take is your gift and your grace. And he stands to worship and marvel at what God is doing. All right, we see in here the, the substance of the Lord's prayer. Essentially, he ends up saying, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He worships God as supreme, as sovereign, as powerful, as creator, as the owner, as of the giver of every good gift which comes down from the Father of light. So we have nothing to give today. You have nothing to give today, whether it's in tithe or in a pledge next week that has not been graciously provided to you by the God who gives every good and perfect gift. And central to God's glory is this, that he is the source of every good thing. Apart from him, we have nothing. Apart from him, Jesus says, we can do nothing. And this is what he stands and celebrates and whatever God does in the midst of the community. God did it. God gave it. God provided it. God provided it. And all glory, praise, and honor belongs to him. Spurgeon says, David acknowledges that Israel is entirely dependent upon Yahweh, Jehovah, for the means of rendering him any acceptable service. God does not thank us for our giving. What we see in the text is, we thank him for allowing us to give. Do we have the ability to give, and that we have the privilege of participating. We see it in Romans chapter 7. If you remember back in verse 4, he says, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Right? It's, about, you know, it's not about the law. It's not about doing what you have to do. It's not about fulfilling some thing. He says, but you died to all that so that you might belong to him. Right, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear much fruit to God. He raises us from the dead so that we might bear much fruit. You didn't choose me, I chose you, that you would go and bear much fruit. Gratitude and praise to the name of Yahweh. That's verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your Glorious name. David is standing before the wonder who is God. God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And he's marveling at God's grace. That God cares for him. That, that they have so much and that they're able to do what they did, which was to give so generously. Look at verse 14. He says, but who am I? And what is this people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things have come from you. And of your own 
have we given to you? We're simply giving back to you a portion of the good things you've entrusted in to us to steward well for your purposes in your kingdom. And who are we that we have anything and that we can participate in your kingdom? What you are doing. Who are we? We're strangers and sojourners. Verse 15, we're strangers before you, sojourners as all our fathers. All our days on earth are like a shadow. There's no abiding. Who are we? James 4.14 says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Our days are like shadows. He says they don't abide. In other words, our life is borrowed and short. He's saying everything we have is borrowed. You came empty-handed into the world. You're going to leave empty-handed. Everything God gave you in between is but His grace. And even life itself is borrowed. He says, James says, your life is like a mist. This is why Jesus counsels us to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal, like where it abides. Because life is short and borrowed. And true worship acknowledges the dependence of everything we have. Again in verse 16, O Lord our God, all of this abundance that we have provided for the building of a house for your holy name, it comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, verse 17, you test the heart and you have pleasure in uprightness. And in the uprightness of my heart have I freely offered these things to you. David delights in knowing that God looks at the heart because he, his heart is right. Because he has delighted to be a part of what God is doing and to serve him and his kingdom. And he delights that God knows his heart. You, you know and test the heart. My friends, I know this is the spirit among us as I, I close here. I, I visited probably 14 or 15 small groups in the church just trying to get around and have a chance to, to sit with some of you and, and talk about what's going on and try to answer questions. We felt like, you know, as much communication as we could do would be helpful in the life of the church. But one of the things that I found in sitting with various groups at various times is how encouraging you've been to me. Right? That there is a spirit among us, a, a vision for what God is doing and a sense of generosity and joy that, that this is where we are in the life of the church. And I pray that this vision, this spirit that is among us of what God is doing would always characterize us. This joyful service to his kingdom and what he is doing. It's what David prays for. And so I close with the prayer too in verse 18. Right? And so he prays as he, as, he, as he witnesses what God is doing. He marvels at the work of God among his people. The spirit that has been created in his people as they do this thing together. And look at verse 18. He prays, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, will you keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you? Will you, will you make this spirit, these thoughts, these purposes, what you're doing right now in the hearts of your people, will you make it abide? Will we have this heart all the time? May it not just mark this moment and this task, but in, in a life that belongs to him. Our lives may be like shadows and like mist and don't abide, but God is able to keep forever such purposes and thoughts 
in the hearts of his people. And I pray that it is so. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to worship you and you alone. We love you. We, as part of our worship, acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from your hand alone. That our life is borrowed, every breath is borrowed every day, is borrowed from your grace given to us. We didn't earn it and we can't keep it and we have no power over it. You are God. We recognize all that we have is grace. Let us live as a people of generous grace. Will you keep forever in the hearts of your people the joy and generosity for you and your kingdom? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.